It's good to be able to gather together and worship to exalt our God and King, and we continue in our study of our affirmation of faith. Now, the question was raised, why are we studying our affirmation of faith? Uh, on the basic level, we are going to approve our, this new affirmation of faith later in the year, and so it would be good for you all to know what we're affirming. But on a deeper level, the goal of our, affirm, our study of the affirmation of faith is to help shape our identity as a church. It's been a couple of years. We've been kind of locked down, and now we're beginning to regather, beginning to come together, and it's important to recognize what binds us together. And it cannot simply be the fact that you like one another. That's good. But it's not enough. Life is too stressful. And as much as I like all of you, I know we're all sinners. And our relationships are going to fray. We need something bigger, deeper, greater to bind us together. And part of the answer to that is the affirmation of faith. Our common belief, our common grasp, our common resting on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is fleshed out in our affirmation of belief. And it's not simply a question of knowing intellectually. Our goal in understanding our affirmation of faith is for that affirmation of faith to actually not just shape our identity, but also shape us as a church. For these truths to grip our hearts and begin to change the way we see the world and the way we imagine life, both as a body and as individuals when we go out into the world. And those are the main, so those are the main reasons why we're studying the affirmation of faith. And with that in mind, I'd like you to go beyond simply the theological, um, the theological depth and the exercise of your brilliant acumen to actually examine yourself in light of this affirmation of faith and say, this is great. I understand it. In fact, I have a few questions to ask you, RJ. You can shoot me the email. Or the second Sunday of June, you can come sit down with me uh, over lunch, and we'll talk about the affirmation of faith and ask me the questions that you have of that affirmation of faith. But let's go beyond that to examine how my life needs to change in light of the affirmation of faith. Especially as we go into now the doctrine of God as triune. You, you, if you were following the affirmation of faith sequence, you might have been surprised because we talked about Jesus before going into the doctrine of God. And that is because of a very important reason that comes from Michael Reeves. 
in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. By the way, I would highly recommend that you get a copy of this book. Um, I know some of the guys read through Robert Latham's Holy Trinity. Uh, I read that 10 years ago, and I had trouble understanding it. So if you didn't understand Holy Trinity by Robert Latham, get this, that book will make sense. <laughs> anyway, Michael Reeves says, when you start with the Jesus of the Bible, it is a triune God that you get. The Trinity, then, is not a product of abstract speculation. When you proclaim Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Son of the Father, you proclaim the triune God. And knowing God as triune is not simply theological nitpicking. It is actually integral to our worship. Lest we fall into the, uh, it, it, we, we uh, fall prey to Jesus' comment, you worship what you don't know. To know God as triune specifies which God we worship, whom we worship. More importantly, the doctrine of the Trinity shows us a God who is beautiful beyond our description. And our affirmation of faith reflects the orthodox understanding of the Trinity that has been developed over many years of wrestling with the biblical evidence and subsequently expressed in creeds, confessions, and catechisms. And on a side note, this is part of the reason why you cannot simply say, I will understand Christianity by opening my Bible all by myself. To try to do that is to fall prey to the couple hundred years of errors about the Trinity. You want to understand the Trinity, you need to work together with the church to hear the wisdom of those who have gone before us and embrace their own wrestling with the text and learn from them. And so here is our affirmation of faith. There is one and only one God who is the creator, if we can show that one, of the universe. God has always existed and will always exist. He is the ultimate authority over all persons and things, and he answers to no higher being or principle. In biblical terms, we affirm that he is holy, which means that he is in every way unique and in a category all his own, free from all the limits and imperfections experienced by creatures. In both the majesty of his being and the moral purity of his nature and action, he is uniquely perfect. Although God is one in his being, he exists eternally in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God is both one and three, but not in the same sense. The Trinity is a mystery, but not a mathematical contradiction. 
The idea of the Trinity is beyond our full comprehension, but we are compelled by the witness of the Bible to affirm it. Now, our belief in the triune God defines our faith because it identifies whom we worship and it sets Christianity apart from all other religions. Now, the question is, is it biblical? Turn with me, please, to John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. John 13, 31. And we will consider from there up to the end of chapter 14. The Bible doesn't outright say God is triune. In fact, you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible uh, unless it's outside of Genesis and Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. You'll, you'll find it in the preface. You may find it in other sections of your Bible, but not from Genesis to Revelation. But we synthesize the data that is found in the Bible. And one of the texts that we look at where Jesus reveals that God is triune is his farewell, what is called his farewell discourse from John 13, 31 to the end of chapter 16. In that conversation between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus is teaching them about who God is and about his nature and what his plans are. And as we listen in on their conversation, we are able to understand that God is triune. So, John 13, 31, up to chapter 14, verse 31. When he had gone out, referring to Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going... Cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, <laughs> will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, 
we do not know where you're going. How, how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now, you stay. All right, so this is Jesus' conversation with his disciples. And it has finally sunk in for his disciples. Jesus is about to die. And you could probably relate to the anxiety and sense of abandonment that the disciples felt when Jesus told them he was leaving. 
He wasn't just going to Rome. He was going to die. And this after they had put all their hope in him. And to make matters worse, Peter, who was their most vocal companion, some would say their leader, would deny Jesus three times. The future looked bleak. They felt alone and very inadequate. And so to calm their troubled hearts, Jesus tells them that his death is no accident. His death glorifies God and accomplishes his purposes. Better yet, his death would not break their bond. It would actually result in greater intimacy. Because as he says in chapter 14, verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also implicitly forever. And his conversation with them gives us the main tenets of the doctrine of the Trinity, which the New City Catechism would summarize as follows. Um, to the question, how many persons are in God? The answer is, there are three persons in the one true and living God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And right away in chapter 14, verse 1, you see that equality being affirmed and asserted by Jesus. Because he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is making himself the object of their faith, just as they trust in God. And yet, he is not calling them to be idolaters. He's saying that their belief in God is highly appropriate. And in the same fashion, belief in him is also appropriate. And that is because, if you look down to verse 7, to know him is to know the Father. Indeed, in verse 9, Jesus would go on, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So not only are they equal, they also have the same substance. They're the same in substance. As we talked about in Hebrews chapter 1, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So that to see Jesus is to see the Father. But at the same time, he is distinct from the Father because in verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a distinction between them. But for now, we recognize the Father and the Son are fully God equal to one another. By the same token, the Spirit is also fully God. And we know that because in verse 16, we find that Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. In describing the Spirit as the Spirit of truth, Jesus is saying that he continues the work of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
And in calling him a, another advocate or another helper, Jesus is putting the Spirit on the same level because in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is described by John as our advocate or our helper. Um, 1 John 2 verse 1, it says there, um, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate there is the same word that is used here in John 14, the parakletos, the helper or advocate. That implies that the Holy Spirit is the same nature or substance as the Son. And therefore, the Son, being fully God, means the Spirit is also fully God, and therefore of the same substance as the Father. And these, the persons of the Trinity are the same in substance, equal in power and glory, but they are not equivalent, neither are they interchangeable. They are distinct persons, but they are not three gods. They are united, and that we see in verse 10 and 11. Notice what Jesus say, says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? See that unity? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So that there is distinction, right? But there is also unity. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. So that when Jesus speaks of his works, he is referring in the context of the Gospel of John to his turning the water into wine, healing the nobleman's son from afar with his word, restoring the man paralyzed after 38 years, feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children, walking on water, calming the storm, giving sight to the man who was born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. All of those works are works that only God could do. And there are signs that demonstrate that God, or Jesus, is God in the flesh. Equal to the Father in power, but distinct from the Father. But then you notice in verse 10 and 11, that they are also, he, he describes those works as the Father's works. You notice that? Um, verse 10. The Father who dwells in me does his works because there is a union, a unity with, within them. They're united to one another. All that to say, God is one in three persons. And I know you may need an Advil later on. Um, as I was working with the, the group that was helping me preach, we all came to the conclusion it's mind-boggling. And therein lies the beauty of this truth. This truth is so mind-boggling, no human being could have ever come up with it. 
Only the self-revelation of God in Scripture demands that we believe it. It points us to the awesome reality of this God who, as we sang earlier, is indescribable, uncontainable, whose greatness is unsearchable. He is so awesome. Our finite minds cannot fathom him. And so the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in three persons, is meant to humble us. And in being humbled at our limitations and finitude, lead us to worship and adore this triune God who has graciously revealed himself to you and me. See, really, we could not have known him as this awesome, magnificent God were it not for him revealing himself in his Son. We wouldn't know him this way. Now, Somebody might object because they were paying attention to the reading of Scripture in verse 28. Well, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. How can you say that he is equal in power and glory to the Father? Well, good question. Glad you're paying attention. Look at verse 28. Let's look at the context. Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus going away means that he is returning to the Father, and all of that is accomplished when he dies on the cross. So, jump forward to John 17, verse 4 and verse 5 to understand what it means for Jesus to return to the Father. John 17, 4 and 5. Jesus prays to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, and hear this well, with the glory that I had with you before the world So through his death, Don Carson points out, he is returning to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory he had with the Father before the world began, to the place where the Father is undiminished in glory, unquestionably greater than the Son, and here's the important phrase, in his incarnate state. In other words, when Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, he is talking about his status in his humanity. If you're a geek theologian, you talk about the state of Jesus, of the state in uh, his state of humiliation. Please understand, Jesus has not stopped being God. And his prayer indicates that before the world existed, he was eternally with the Father. That's John 1.1, 1, 1, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. He was eternally with the Father, sharing in the glory of the Father, so that He is equal to the Father in glory and power. But He humbled Himself, as our affirmation on Christ would say, in order to save us humans. That's a clunky phrase. Maybe we'll have to clear that up. In order to save us humans, he added to his divinity a full and perfect human nature and thus became Jesus of Nazareth. He willingly humbled himself by becoming a human being while still being God. And here's what we need to realize. That God the Son humbled himself for the specific purpose of laying down his life for us indicates the depth of his love for us. Jesus himself said, greater love has no man than this, than for a man to lay down his life for his friends. And we don't just enjoy the love of the Son. The doctrine of the Trinity means that the triune God loves us. The unity of the Godhead means that the Holy Spirit loves you and me as much as Jesus loves us. Indeed, he is the reason Jesus could say in chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Certainly, the disciples would see him after his resurrection. But Jesus is promising them more. He's promising that the Spirit would dwell with us and enable us to know the abiding love of the Father and the Son. Look at verse 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Imagine that. That the Father and the Son would dwell with us. And that is enabled by the Spirit dwelling in us. And he's the one who enables us to understand more fully who Jesus is and what he has done, according to verse 26. And by the same token, it's not just the Son who loves us. It's not just the Spirit who loves us. The Father loves us as much as Jesus loves us because he is the one who sent the Son in the first place. Look at verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. See, that's great. The Father loves us so much that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son to die to purchase you and me. That's how much the Father loves us. In fact, J.I. Packer points out that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. In knowing God, he says, to those who are Christ's, the holy God is a loving father. They belong to his family. They may approach him without fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. 
Now, I, I know that some of us may have had bad fathers. As a father, I know I am very flawed and have failed many times. But the good news of the Trinity, that God the Father is a perfectly wise and loving Father. He's the one that we have longed for all our lives. He is the standard for all fathers. Again, Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, would say, many theologians have liked, have liked to compare the Father to a fountain, ever bursting out with life and love. Indeed, the Lord calls himself the spring of living water in Jeremiah. And the image crops up again and again in Scripture. And just as a fountain to be a fountain must pour forth water, so the Father to be Father must give out life. That is who he is. That is his most fundamental identity. Thus, love is not something the Father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. He could not not love. If he did not love, he would not be father. And you see, that, that reality of our father being love is what gives us confidence as we face the uncertainties of life, as we think of Harold in the hospital and faith not even being aware of what's going on. We know we can entrust them to our Father who loves them more than we could ever love them. We know that whatever is going on in your life, in my life, in the life of the church, in the world around us, our Father is at work, lovingly exercising His matchless power to care for His children. Remember what Jesus said when, he, when Mary was trying to cling to him? He's saying, I am going to my father and your father. See, that's the joy of this text. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our father who has pledged himself to care for us. And who is even now acting out of his infinite wisdom, guiding all events, joyful and painful, for the good of his children and the glory of his name. Even in the painful circumstances of life, our God is acting as our Father for our good. And yes, when you're in the deeps of despair, you still wonder, how can I be sure that God loves me? John 14, 24 answers that question. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The Father sent the Son to restore our broken relationship with him. Let's back up a little bit. The triune God had created Adam and Eve in his image so that they may enjoy him. He created the world out of the overflow in the delight of the triune God in himself. Father, Son, and Spirit eternally delighting in one another. And because 
It is their nature to give life. It is the Father's nature to give life. They created the world. They created us in God's image so that we may enjoy Him. According to Michael Reeves, made in the image of this God, we were created to delight in harmonious relationship, to love God, to love each other. What then went wrong? It was not that Adam and Eve stopped loving. They were created as lovers in the image of God, and they could not undo that. Instead, their love turned. Lovers we remain, but twisted. Our love misdirected and perverted. Created to love God, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. And by our perverted love, we condemn ourselves to frustration and damnation forever. But know how much the Father loves us. He refused to give up on us. In fact, what boggles the mind is that even before he created the world, Ephesians 1 says he freely chose to love us. He chose us in love. And he spared no expense to bring us back. As Romans 8.32 would say, he did not spare his own son but gave himself up for us all. That's why I had us read Genesis, 19, Genesis 22. See, Abraham, Paul is referring to that text when he says he did not spare his own son. Abraham was merely tested. He was willing to give Isaac, but God spared him. The beauty of what God has done is that he spared not his own son. Jesus was not spared. It is the nature of God to be self-giving. And in love for his father, the son willingly humbled himself to become a man just like you and me without sin so that he may die in our stead, bearing our sin and shame, loving us to the end, bearing the wrath and judgment you and I deserve, and sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father, paves the way for the gift of the Spirit who gives us new hearts, who opens our eyes to the beauty of Jesus so that we would trust in him. Lovers we remain, but now, because of the work of the Spirit, our eyes are opened to delight in the Savior. See, in the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, that is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of the triune God. And it is that love that actually draws out our response of loving obedience. When Jesus says in verse 5, chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not a love that we create of ourselves. It is the love that is 
responding to that infinite love that we know and experience in Christ. The infinite love of the triune God for us grips us and redirects our misguided loves back to Him. God's love awakens a response of love for Him so that we would want to please Him who is the lover of our souls. And knowing that He loves us, then we trust that His commands are for our good. And so we express our love and confidence in Him by our obedience. And it doesn't even stop there. God dwells in us through His Spirit so that we may be strengthened to obey Him. And better yet, verse 20, chapter 14, verse 23, so that we may know His love more fully. Because the Father and the Son dwell with us, make their home with us. See, that's the love of God. He rescues us from our living death that we may know true, abundant life in relationship with Him. Or to put it in another, to put it another way, that is the peace that Jesus gives in verse 27. When Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give with you, give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. That peace is reconciliation with God and restored relationship with Him. We experience that intimacy in the present by the abiding presence of the Spirit who dwells in you and me. And you know what's so awesome about this? The presence of the Spirit who enables us to experience the love of God is but a foretaste of what is to come. You see, we look forward to the consummation when Christ returned, and then this hope of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit making their home with us will become a reality. Here's what Revelation 21 says. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, this is the hope that is guaranteed by our triune God who, has, who loves us beyond our wildest dreams. So let us worship him by entrusting ourselves to him in obedient love. Let us pray.